Canapreneur, Al Harrington, 16-year NBA veteran, currently the owner of Viola. How are you doing today? I'm good, man. How are you doing today? I'm all right. I'm all right. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Just over the last year, you've evolved so much as a businessman and personally as a man. What's taking you to that next level as a businessman? Well, you know, I mean, obviously I'm inspired just by being an entrepreneur in general. Mm. You know, um, you know, being able to come out of high school at 18 years old and make my first million dollars definitely gave me an appetite of wanting to be successful and to continue to, to uh, create generational wealth, you know, not only for me, but for my family. And, you know, that's what allowed me to, you know, take these other leaps into these other industries, you know, and obviously, you know, jumping into the cannabis space, one that, you know, I'm looking to dominate, you know, especially when it comes to, you know, urban culture and creating a brand for my people. Yeah. You've watched so many of your peers and, and you know, people you've played with over the years um, come up on hard times financially after their career. How have you managed to stay financially secure and start investing in other things? Well, I mean, it started throughout my career. You know what I'm saying? I, um, you know, it's not a good story to tell, but it's a real story. You know, uh, coming out of high school after my rookie contract, you know, I was with a, a financial institution. I won't mention the name, but, you know, at the end of those, you know, three and a half years, you know, I had less than $100,000 saved. You know, and at that point, I had back surgery at that time. So it was an eye-opener for me, just letting me know how, how short my career could, could be. You know, and, you know, God was able to bless me to play 12 more years, um, you know, to make, you know, a, a, a lot of money, good money. And, you know, I was able to invest, make some sound investments, save a lot of money, you know, to put me in a position where, you know, when I was done, that I could, you know, uh, uh, participate in some of these entrepreneurial things that I, that I had interest in. What made you, after you left, because a lot of people have such a hard time transitioning to... Uh, real life from the NBA. What made you, what made it so easy for you to transition? Well, I was able to find the cannabis industry, you know, while I was still playing. So, you know, what was unique about it was that as time went on, I started to want to do more with cannabis than actually play basketball. Yeah. So that's why I was, the transition was me for so, was so easy, you know, and, you know, the work ethic that I took from basketball or that got me, you know, to the NBA and allowed me to play for 16 years is that same work ethic and attitude that I bring into, you know, into my cannabis business, you know, and that's the reason why we've been having the success that we have because, you know, we have a company, you know, Monica, nobody will outwork us. And, you know, everybody in our company has that mindset. And that's the reason why we've been able to expand in four states with a relatively small team and, you know, and not raising a lot of money like a lot of our competitors. Now, a lot of people think this transition has been easy for you, but it hasn't. It's a startup company just like everybody else. Just because you had some funding, uh, your own funding, it wasn't easy. Talk to me about the hurdles you had to face as an entrepreneur getting into this cannabis industry. Well, it's been tough because, you know, at the end of the day, we jumped into an industry where it was nobody that we can go to and get advice from. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? We're pioneers. So, you know, me and my partner, we literally had to take a lot of bumps and bruises, ups and downs, losses or whatever. But what we did was, and which was key to our success today, is that we kept learning from our mistakes and we kept moving forward. We never made mistakes where it was just, it was so detrimental to the company where, you know, it put us out of business. And, um, you know, that's the reason why we've been able to have that success. Who are some of your mentors um, coming into this business space? I don't have any. You know what I'm saying? I'm my mentor. 
there's been <laughs> you know, none my, my, as you've been going on along? No, not yet. You know what I'm saying? Like, we do more educating than anybody. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So I would say the one mentor I do have is my partner, you know, his name is Dan Pettigrew. And, you know, we just kind of bounce off each other and keep learning and keep pushing ourselves. How you first came across cannabis is, is interesting to me. Um, having so many knee surgeries, they were giving you pills and giving you pills and it wasn't working. Then you found something that was natural that could help you. Talk to me a little bit about how cannabis helped you continue your career. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that if I did have access to cannabis, you know, potentially I could have played another year or two. You know, my, my injury was a little bit more severe than others. You know what I'm saying? I have like a lot of my articulating cartilage, you know, had been, you know, eaten away through an uh, infection that I had. So I put me, made me bone on bone. But, you know, the last two years I was able to play, you know, in the three on three league or whatever that, you know, I was able to play and I felt great and I managed all my pain and all my rehab and everything through cannabis. So, you know, obviously, you know, there's times when I actually smoke cannabis, but we also have topicals, tinctures, capsules, things like that, that allow me to, you know, be able to go out there and compete at a high level still at my age. The moment um, is, is so deep. The moment when you're at your crib in New Jersey with your grandmother and she couldn't see, she couldn't read her Bible and trying to get her to try cannabis for the first time. But of course, she, was, she wasn't having it because mm -hmm. of the stigma it has in her, her generation. She eventually tried it, and what happened? Well, she, uh, she immediately got relief. You know, she, uh, she complained about not being able to see, um, not being able to see colors, different things like that. And when she tried cannabis, literally an hour later, I went to go check on her, and she was downstairs reading her Bible, and she said that was the first time she was able to read it in over three years. So Rob was so important to me was just because of where I grew up. You know, I grew up in New Jersey during the Dare era, and I remember, you know, two kids in my class in eighth grade getting locked up for having nickel bags of weed, you know what I'm saying, in their lockers. And then I also remember seeing, you know, crackheads or, you know, drug abusers in, the, you know, in alleyways and people telling me that cannabis is what got them there. You know what I'm saying? So for me, it was, it was, it was a transition that I seen once I got to the pros, but then once my grandmother solidified it. You know what I'm saying? That it definitely had that medical relief that everybody was telling telling me about. And I don't know, it just inspired me, man. Like, you know, to see it help her and to then, you know, start educating myself, then making the phone call, you know, to my partner and us coming together and figuring it out, like literally figuring it out with no help. We're in a city or a state where we had knew nobody. Mm -hmm. And we were able to figure out a way to get licensed, you know what I'm saying, and create a dope product and a dope brand. You know what I'm saying? And now we're, you know, one of the top three concentrate companies in the entire state, and we're just growing, we're just expanding from there. What I love about the company is it didn't start for a monetary gain. You were genuinely trying to help people um, that were sick with HIV and cancer. What are you doing in the community to help? Well, you know, one of the things that we're starting up with our company is an initiative where we're going to take a portion of our proceeds and start to, uh, you know, give back to the community. And we want to have real social impact on our communities. You know, the one thing that I've realized, and I didn't realize it early just because I had a lot of the resources, was the fact that the barrier of entry for, uh, for blacks to get into the space is so steep. You know what I'm saying? And, and there's no real um, solution out there to figure that out. So that's one of the things that my company is now passionate about in trying to create, is create opportunities for black people to have ownership in the cannabis space.
that's very important to us. You know what I'm saying? So obviously, yes, there is this medical side, and you know, we all know now that cannabis is is medicine. But at the same time, as we got to this point, there's been a lot of lives that have been destroyed behind this plant. And now it's this new billion dollar industry and our people have no representation. And that's something that my company wants to kind of lead the charge on creating and, and changing, you know what I'm saying, by allowing more black ownership, you know, through opportunities that I feel like we can create. Social equity. You talk about social equity a lot. What does that, what does that mean to you? That's what it means. It means inclusion of, you know, black, brown in the cannabis industry. Like I said, you know, the fact that, you know, 85% of all drug arrests, you know, in the black community are all cannabis related. Um, we still have brothers and sisters still in jail in states where it's recreationally legal and they're still locked up for nickel bags and for third time offenders and stuff like that. Like, that's ridiculous. And then even when those people aren't allowed to come home, they have it on their record where they can't even go get a job at McDonald's or, which is even crazier, they can't even work in the cannabis industry. You know what I'm saying? So we're working with a lot of the, uh, you know, uh, state authorities and stuff like that to change that, expunge records, give, the, give, give black brown an opportunity to participate in this industry where we know like this industry is gonna be just as big as liquor and um, we, we just need representation. Tell me a little bit about your CBD company, Replay. You know, obviously I wish I, I wanted to make it Viola CBD, but you know, there's a lot of different laws and restrictions and different things like that where, you know, I didn't want to kind of convolute the two. So what we did was we created another company uh, called Harrington Wellness, and our first line of products is under the Replay uh, brand. And that, uh, and the SKUs under that is uh, a vape pen, uh, topical, tincture, capsules, and this wellness shot. And why that's important is just, you know, as we continue to change the, the stigma about cannabis and that we continue to humanize this plant, CBD is so instrumental and in, I feel like people's being, people gateway into cannabis. You know what I'm saying? A lot of older people are always scared, afraid of the TAC side, but the, T, but the CBD has a lot of benefits as well. And, you know, as we continue to educate people, we'll educate them and let them know that THC and CBD together creates a better entourage effect that would actually create a better product. But that's something we'll have to get to down the line. But, you know, I pretty much created this brand for, you know, the weekend warrior, um, for the athletes, you know, people that just deal with constant pain every day. And instead of them, you know, taking all these opioids and all these prescription drugs that have been shown to be highly addictive and obviously dangerous, you know, I just feel like, you know, CBD should be an alternative way for people to medicate themselves. So I just got finished this weekend watching Ava DuVernay's uh, miniseries, mm -hmm. When They See Us, I right. think it's called. Yeah. Um, we different. We dress different. We talk different. We come from different environments. And when they see us, everything, our swagger, they don't understand it. We go in these rooms just like how we dress, a uh, dress coat on with a hoodie. When they see you come in and talk about cannabis and, cannabis and articulate yourself like you do, does that make certain people uncomfortable? And have you had to deal with certain things on the other side in the boardrooms that we don't know about? No, I mean, I, I think I come across as being, you know, impressive. You know, a lot of times, you know, they think that, you know, being an ex-athlete in marijuana is just like, all he wants to do is just smoke weed and make money and this, that, but it's not that. You know what I'm saying? We have purpose in what we're doing. 
And I think that after people get a chance to sit down with me for 30, 45 minutes and allow me to tell my story and why I'm doing what I'm doing, I feel like more people are um, impressed by it. And usually, you know, they, they want to help or try to figure out how they can get involved. So from my perspective, you know, um, I've been getting a lot of positive um, feedback and interaction. Um, I guess the toughest thing is, you know, a lot of times is when you're actually raising money is when, you know, you kind of get that, what does he know about running a billion dollar business? You know what I'm saying? But we're showing them every day what I know. Business-wise, since you've started Viola and your other brands, what's been the biggest setback and the toughest part about transitioning into business? Uh, you know, it's just, it's literally just, you know, Taking the, the losses, man, yeah. the bumps and bruises, not only the losses, but the setbacks, yeah. you know, you know, because obviously every time we make a decision, we believe wholeheartedly that's the best thing to do at that time. Mm -hmm. And when you find out that wasn't the best thing, you know, it could be discouraging, you know what I'm saying? But like I said, being that we can continue to keep pushing forward, you know, it allows us to, you know, be able to go out and make the, make the decisions, stand behind them. And if we have to pivot, we pivot, you know what I'm saying? And we, we've done a great job at that. Um, you know, like I said, we have a small operation team of pretty much five and we operate in four states. You know what I'm saying? Like that's that's really impressive. You know what I mean? So we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. Keep, uh, you know, create a great product that we can stand by, that people will, you know, continue to shop for and continue to change lives, you know, through some of our social equity initiatives and program. When we talk about setbacks, there was probably no bigger setback for you and Viola than what happened in Detroit. Mm -hmm. Expand upon that a little bit. Yeah, so um, pretty much we was jacked by the police. It's crazy. Um, it was did they have any right to do what they did? Obviously they had no right. I mean, we went to, you know, they obviously did the whole thing. They, they labeled us criminals, organized uh, 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 criminal organization from the West Coast, all these different things. But at the end of the day, we was right. You know, we had all our paperwork. We did everything we were supposed to do. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's something called uh, asset forfeiture. And that's what they was there for. Because if there was anything that they found that we were doing uh, wrong, you know, they would have been able to keep everything that they, you know, confiscated from us. But, uh, you know, why it's important to talk about is just that, you know, it's, it's accountability, you know, from, you know, from our local authorities, you know. When that happened, you know, they freeze everything. They freeze your bank accounts. You know, they lock you up. Uh, they put you in such a tough spot that, you know, if you don't have resources, you're done. You know, when you freeze someone's bank account, that, uh, that doesn't allow them to go out and get an attorney. You know, we was fortunate enough that we was able to get seven attorneys, you know what I'm saying, to clear our name. But a lot of people don't have that. So the point being is, like, a lot of people put their last. Like, I know so many people that ask me for advice about how to get in the cannabis industry. And, and part of their advice, they're asking me, like, you know, they want to put their house up, they want to put their cars up, they want to put their last, you know, for this opportunity. And for, you know, for someone to do that, go through all the processes, do everything they're supposed to do, and for the police to come in and just do that, and it's just like, well, you deal with it afterwards. You know, it's something that needs to be talked about, and, you know, we just got to find a way that if these states are going to allow cannabis use to be there and to be produced there and stuff like that, they got to hold their people accountable, you know what I'm saying, the way they um, police it. What would... Or regulate it. What would Al Harrington now tell Al Harrington when he was 16 years old, about to go to the NBA? Uh, we would have told him to invest in tech. Because <laughs> I was right during that tech moment. Now, you had an opportunity to invest in Google. 
I did. At one point, you I passed did. up on it yeah, right before it was really Google. Yeah, your your father told me to invest, and uh, I told my financial advisor. He said, "What does that guy know about mm-hmm. investing in tech?" You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So I definitely missed the boat on that. But investing in tech, um, I also when I first, when I was a rookie, I lived in Jersey City. Yeah, and all that property on the water was all available, or whatever. Mm. I would have bought some of that property, but at the end of the day, like you know, I don't really have no regrets, bro. You know what I'm saying? I would just tell my 16 year old self, like, man, just just work hard, bro. Just keep working, keep working, and success will follow. You know what I'm saying? So that would be my biggest, you know, advice to myself at 16. Why do so many athletes immediately after they stop hooping go broke? Um, I think a lot of times because they don't understand the overhead that they have while they're playing, and then when they get done, um, you know, I think that most financial advisors, and I mean, I'm sure when I say this, if they hear this, they're like, I would never do that. But, you know, most financial advisors' attitude is like, you just play basketball and, 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 and make the money and I'll invest in it and take care of it for you. They never teach the athletes what it really means to have the money to pay the taxes um, how, you know, leasing cars compared to owning cars and insurance and how all these things affect your overall, um, you know, nut in life. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And then, you know, a lot of guys invest in things that they know nothing about. You know what I'm saying? I think that's another way that guys, you know, somebody come up with this great idea to create, you know, water out of air and they need $20 million and the players step up and give them $20 million and it goes belly up, you know what I'm saying? So I think it just comes down to financial financial literacy yeah. is that is what a lot of athletes are missing. Are players taught this upon entry to the league? No. they. I mean, we have programs in the NBA where, you know, we have hour meetings or whatever, two-hour meetings uh, three or four times a year. And out of one of those meetings, they'll talk about financial literacy, but it's not something that's like a super priority. How do you deal with the family members that go, yo, Big Al, let me hold a rag, or let me hold two rags, or let me hold some money. At, that, at what point do you say, I can't do this anymore, bro? Well, once I retired, it was when the nose came in, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Obviously, when I played, you know, I'm, you know, I like to see my people do good and have stuff, you know what I'm saying? So I definitely said yes more than I should have. But, you know, once I retired, I retired, I had two kids, mm. you know what I'm saying? I wanted to have some more. So... I knew at that point I had to start, you know, taking care of myself and doing what was right for me. What's the end goal for Viola? Um, the end goal for Viola is to become a, 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 a national, international brand. And like I said, you know, I'm not going to put a dollar amount on it, but, you know, we want to be known as the company that literally created uh, generational wealth, you know, within our community you know, through cannabis, something that destroyed it. But we want to, you know, take this money, reinvest, build it back up, you know what I'm saying, to just to, to, to make us better people. Al, I appreciate you coming down, spending some time with me, talking about your companies. Thank you. Thank you, Gus.